0: Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel East Anaheim. So if you have your Bible, open to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. um, You know, we have been going through this series called The Truth We Confess, looking at the Westminster Confession of Faith. And again, we're not necessarily teaching the the doctrine and the theology of the confession, but we're using the topics, the the articles, as kind of a a topical study, a guide, so that we, as we study through it, we cover all the major uh, doctrines and practices for the church, you know, so we're going through topically and covering these main doctrines and seeing everything that the Bible has to say about it. You know, we... Typically, at Calvary Chapel, do verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible, which is a great way to cover the Bible. And you get everything, you're not leaving anything out doing that. But it's kind of limited because you're you're getting these things, but just as they're presented in the context they're presented in that passage. So, this is kind of doing the reverse of that. We're taking the concept and looking at everything that the Bible has to say about that. So, my prayer is is that this will be a great complement to the, the studies that we've been doing on Sunday mornings and Wednesday night, and uh, and I pray that it has been. I know even for me, you know, I'm sitting there Sunday morning and Pastor Bob is saying some of these things, and uh, and I'm like, yeah, we, we've we been talking about this. This is great. You know, I'm, I'm able to understand it better because it's fresh in my mind. But last night, we or last week, we covered a, a very important subject. We talked about Christian liberty in our conscience. Uh, and, and we talked about how this is really, really important, you know, so much so that and, and it's a major theme throughout the New Testament. You look at books like First Corinthians, and Paul dedicates two whole chapters to, to that subject, using your liberty. Here in the book of Romans, there's a, there's a whole chapter dedicated to using our liberty in the right way. So it's a very important subject in the New Testament. Um, And we kind of see this idea of liberty or freedom expressed in two different ways. Uh, First of all, what we talked about last week is the source of our freedom is obviously Jesus in the gospel. It's the cross that that got our freedom and then all that he freed us from. And last week we we covered that. We talked about all the things that that Jesus has set us free from, all the freedoms that we have in Christ. And we're totally free. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, right? I'm free, right? But today we're going to get a little bit different. We're going to look at these freedoms, but but not necessarily what are all the freedoms. We're going to look at how am I going to use these freedoms in a way that's going to honor God? What are some principles to think about that I could use my freedom in a way that's going to bless God and my brother's in Christ, So we're going to look at Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, we'll get into it. Paul says this, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own mouth stands or he falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, he observes it to the Lord. And he who eats, for he does so to the Lord. For for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord, he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written as I love, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle of stumbling or, or stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing is unclean in Itself, But to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. So, God, uh, we do thank you for the liberties you've given us, and I pray that we would grow in those, that we would realize just everything you've done for us and how free you've made us, Lord. But I pray tonight that you will teach us how to use these liberties in a way that honor you, in a way that builds up and edifies our brother, Lord, and in a way that uh, makes you know, God. Uh, we want this world to come to know you in a, a big way of, Big part of that is the way that we use the liberties that you've given us, Lord. So teach us tonight. Your servants are with me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week I was a bit ambitious, and I only made it about halfway through what I intentionally or originally intended to cover. And so tonight we're we're picking back up on that, and we're talking about uh, again how to use our liberties. Last week, we discovered that, that Jesus set us free by the gospel, right? That he was uh, set us free by going to the cross. He fulfilled the law. Uh, the, we spoke of how that there's a curse of the law, right? That everyone is trying to obey this law that they couldn't obey and then being condemned by it. Uh, it's been said like this, that the law is, uh, tells you to, to run a four-minute mile and then it breaks your legs and mocks you because you can't run that four minute mile. Uh, you know, it's kind of cruel. Whereas the gospel's a little bit different. The gospel bids you to fly, but then gives you wings and enables you to soar high and above. Right? And so so Jesus became that curse for us. He hung on the tree. It says, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. He obeyed the law for us and he ran that four minute mile that we can't run. And because of that, Now we're able to have the wings and to soar and to have that freedom. We also talked about the many, many things that Christ has set us free from. Uh, When we stop and think about all of this, it's just amazing. You know, my first trip to Israel when I went as a teacher with the Bible college, I was living in the old city of Jerusalem for three months at the time. And and now it's a polar opposite of here. In every way, uh, the old city of Jerusalem is the opposite of Orange County. And one of the big differences is you see that uh, uh, there, everything is about religion. Here we live in a, a secular culture in that, but there it's all about religion. And I remember the, the biggest takeaway for me that first trip was coming home and re- realizing, having this visual image of the freedom that I have in Christ, the freedom to worship Christ in spirit and in truth. and have all these rules and regulations and things like that. And, and, and so there's just so much that we have to be thankful for when we think of the freedoms that God has given us. You know, we're free. We're We're totally free. What does this mean? How do I use this freedom? Does it mean that I could just basically do whatever I want? Is that what it means to be free in Christ? And the answer is is that God has given us a conscience, uh, and this conscience tells us how to use our freedoms. It it tells us uh, what each one of us is to do and what's right and what's going to honor the Lord, this conscience that God's given us to do that. The Lexham Bible Dictionary defines the conscience this way. It says the conscience is a capacity or faculty or of moral intuition, consciousness, or reflection. A person's internal awareness or sense of abiding by or transgressing moral standards. And an internal witness to moral obligation based on t- intuition or self-assessment. That's how the Bible Dictionary defines conscience. Uh, it, it's almost like God has put a moral compass in each one of us that's going to point us to true north. point us to himself, point us in the direction that we're going to go. The conscience is is kind of an interesting thing. Did you know that our government has what they call the conscience fund? Uh, The IRS has set this up because what would happen is is people would pay their taxes and then later on their conscience would be eating at them that they cheated on their taxes and so they would uh, unanimously send money to the IRS saying, hey, you know, I cheated on my taxes and I owe you $5,000, so here it is, to relieve their conscience. And so the, the government didn't really know what to do with this money, and so it just created this fund to hold all this money, right? But, but it shows the conscience is, is what, it, 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 in Romans chapter three, Paul says that our, our conscience either uh, excuses, Or accuses us. It it, it tells us that, hey, what we're doing is right or or that it's wrong. And and when we violate our conscience, there's this burden to it. And so this conscience telling us what is right and what is wrong. Well, that's great. There shouldn't be a problem. Everybody should know how to use their liberties because of this conscience that we have. But there's a problem. Yeah, God blessed us with this conscience, this moral compass that's going to help us. But he also gave us a free will. He give us a free foreign will, which allows us to say no to that compass. It's to say, hey, you know, I know my GPS is telling me to turn right, but I know a shortcut. If I just go straight, I could get there in my own way, in my own time, and I could just hear redirecting, 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 or whatever. Right, we have the capacity to override our conscience. And then you add to the problem that our conscience is corruptible. You know, the more that we disobey our conscience, it becomes calloused and hardened, and then it doesn't function properly. The more that we say no to it, and we do what we're not supposed to, the less it's going to be reliable in the future. And I think a great example of that is Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He said no to his conscience. He said no to his conscience. And then ultimately, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God set Pharaoh's heart in this hardened state where he couldn't hear from the Lord. His conscience wouldn't work the way that it was supposed to. You know, in Isaiah 5:20, we get a, a great picture of a, a defiled or uh, a corrupted conscience that not, isn't working the way that it's supposed to. It says, "Where are those who call evil good and good evil? Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness?" You substitute bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Here you know, this conscience is so corrupted that it's convic- convicting people for doing the right thing. And the people that are actually serving the Lord, worshiping the Lord, and doing it the right way, it's saying that's evil, that's wrong. Yet the people who are doing the wrong thing, it's approving and it's, it's, you know, giving a, a approval of. This is Romans 1, right? At the end of it, not only do they do these things, but they give heartily approval of those who practice them. You know, there's many people today, if you think about it, uh, their conscience condemns Christians for simply believing that homosexuality is a sin. And at the same time, their conscience isn't convicted for practicing homosexuality, for practicing sexual immorality. This is a a, a a great picture of how our conscience gets caressed and hardened, where it doesn't function properly. The same as Isaiah five twenty, in Jeremiah three three, we have an interesting verse. Here he's talking about Judah and Judah's spiritual adultery. You know, when you go off and worship idols, God saw that as committing adultery against Him. And it says this: It says, "Therefore the showers have been withheld." And there has been no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. He's saying, Jenny, you had the forehead of a harlot. You had a harlot's face. Meaning you could go and do what's abominable. You could go and do what's evil over and over and over and not feel any shame. Not feel any guilt over it at all. Not even blush. That's a very dangerous place to be when you can go out and repeatedly sin and willfully sin and not feel guilty, not feel any shame for it. That's a clear sign that your conscience isn't functioning the way that it should be. So our conscience is this great gift that God has given us. It's a great tool to help us know the will of God and honor God. But we should always, we shouldn't, uh, always trust it with our liberties. At least not right away. Uh, Think about this. A, A highway patrolman, someone who works for the CHP, right, he has this great device to help him find people that are violating the law. It's called a radar gun. He holds it up, and when people are violating the law of California by speeding, it tells him. It's like, hey, this person's speeding. Go chase him. Go give him a ticket. But the CHP man can't just go out there and start using this radar gun, right? He has to first calibrate it to make sure that it is telling the right velocity that cars are going. Otherwise, it will be useless. And in the same way, we can't just say, hey, you know what, I feel good about this or I don't feel good about that, right? We need to test and make sure that our conscience is working properly before we could exercise some of these liberties. You know, there's there's all kinds of liberties that we have, things that the Bible hasn't spoken clearly about, you know, things like uh, can Christians go to the movies, can Christians have a beer, can Christians smoke a cigarette, can Christians women wear makeup, things like that. These are, are liberties. The Bible hasn't, you know, spoken one way or the other saying you can or can't do that. So we then we need to take it to the Word and use our, our conscience and the leading of the Spirit and say, hey, God, do you want me to do this? And exercise these liberties in a way that honors God. But before we can just do that, we need to take the liberty test. So throw in the word test for that first throwing. And I believe as uh, I study the book of Romans and especially Romans 14, a chapter we're looking at tonight, that Paul is laying down some simple principles for using our liberties in Christ in a way that will honor God. I also believe that we could take these principles and find four simple diagnostic questions that will help us to see whether we're exercising our conscience, uh, our our Christian liberty, in the, the right way in particular circumstances. So Romans fourteen is uh, it starts and there's this kind of dispute, right? There's some believers that remember they're in Rome and Rome is a mixed church. There's Gentile believers and Jewish believers, and some of the believers are at odds with some of the others because they're eating meat, right? Now we don't know much more than that. In First Corinthians chapters eight and nine, the context was meat that was offered to idols. In a lot of these pagan cities, you would go, and these meat would be sacrificed. They would be killed in a pagan temple and sold outside the temple. And you could buy meat that was sacrificed to idols. And that meat was often cheaper or better than what you could buy somewhere else. And so the question was, could Christians eat that meat? And Paul says, well, there's not really any such thing as an idol, right? It doesn't really exist. So, so go ahead and eat it. You have the, the liberty to eat it. So I I don't know if that was the case. Maybe the case was that this meat wasn't kosher. It wasn't killed. The blood wasn't drained in the right way. And so there's these Jewish believers that are saying, hey, you know what? I'm just not going to eat meat because I don't know that it was dealt with in a kosher manner. But then there was other believers who were, hey, I'm going to eat this. This is great. You know, I'm going to have my, you know, bacon wrapped hot dog and I'm going to enjoy it. This is awesome. And there was this conflict over it, and, 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 and people weren't acting right. They weren't using their liberty in a way that honored God and protected their brother. You know, Romans 1 through 8, it's, it's all about the gospel, right, the way that Christ has set us free. And then in chapters 9 through 11, we see how God sovereignly applies that gospel that you know, message of freedom Uh, to both individuals and to people groups throughout history. That's really what we see in chapters 9 through 11. And then in chapters 12 through 16, it's really how to practically live out that that freedom, how to practically live out that salvation that God has given us. In chapter 12, we say that that we're supposed to be a living sacrifice, right? And, 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 And we're to serve the church, we're to serve in a body. And then in chapter 13, we see that we're supposed to use our liberties in a way uh, in conjunction with the government, that God has ordained the government, he has a purpose for it, and therefore we need to obey it. And so our conscience should work with the law unless it is going against God. Then we have a higher obligation to honor God and honor our conscience. But that's not always, you know, that's, that's hardly the case. A, a good example of this is, you know, here we have the liberty, the freedom to drink a beer. Right? It's not a sin to do so. I can enjoy that. Now, if I were to get on a plane and fly to Qatar to watch the World Cup, I wouldn't have that liberty because in Qatar, drinking alcohol is a sin, or not a sin. It's illegal. They don't sell beer. Right? So if I were to go there and drink a beer, I would be sinning because I would be going against The government. So we need to obey the government uh, in these areas. In Romans 13, verses 9 through 10, Paul writes, For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, chapter 14 is kind of the application of this. What does loving your neighbor look like? How how, how do how, how do we do that? How do we see love fulfilling the law? Uh, so, question number one, this first question in our diagnostic test of how we should use our liberties: Is liberty that I have is this going to be used in a way that's going to honor God? And edifying my brother, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, does this liberty pass the Scripture test? So fill in the word Scripture. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. His opinions. If you have the New King James Version, it says, uh, but not to dispute over doubtful things. So what are these opinions? What are these doubtful things? Well, these are things that the Scripture hasn't talked about, right? Because if the Scriptures explicitly condemn something or give clearer clear teaching on it, then that's what it is, right? That there's no going against that. But other, outside of that, it's, it's your opinion. It, it, it's, it's, it's a doubtful feeling. In the text we're looking at tonight, the doubtful things mentioned had to do with diet and holidays. Some thought it was better to be a vegetarian. Probably had to do with, like I said, you know, the meat not being kosher and raw. Some thought it was better to enjoy meat. Some thought it was better to worship on certain days. And some esteemed every day alike. Right? These are opinions that people have. When I was, uh, that first semester, in at the Bible college in Jerusalem, there was a bunch of the girls who were all into being vegetarian, and they thought by being vegetarian it made them more spiritual and, and things like that, right? And, and and there was this kind of conflict because of that. Right? That is exactly what this is talking about, right? Yeah, they have the freedom to be a vegetarian. I have the freedom to be a meat eater, and God wants us to live in harmony together. But the important thing is, is the Bible doesn't tell us it's a sin to eat meat or it's a sin to not eat meat either way. It's a matter of conscience. It's a matter of opinion. It's a doubtful thing. You know, like I said, the question is, what does the Scripture say about this? Does the Scripture condemn being a vegetarian? Does the Scripture condemn Sabbath worship? I don't think so. Remember, Paul, he would go into the synagogue every Saturday and reason from the scriptures with the Jewish people. Right? So it's not a scriptural thing. Notice, Paul says that we are to accept them, but not to dispute their beliefs. Right? We're not trying to win them over to our convictions, is the idea. We're, we're to accept them as brothers and, and just as that. We're to accept them the way that they are. We really need to apply the Augustinian rule to these. Augustine said this. He said, in the essentials, we need unity. In the non-essentials, there's liberty. But in all things, charity. So the things that the scriptures are very clear about, that the that, that Bible speaks on, we need unity. We all need to believe that, right? For instance, the Virgin Birth, right? We, we need to believe the, the Bible's clear about that. Well, the, the Bible's clear that, that Jesus never sinned; that he lived a perfect life. The Bible's clear that he died on a cross and was buried, and on the third day he rose again. Like, if you don't believe those things, you're not a Christian. But there's other things that it's not clear about, like what day do you worship on? Those days, we have those things. We have liberty. And notice how it says that we're to receive the one who is weak in the faith. Weak in the faith. And by the way, here it, it's kind of interesting to me. The one who is weak in the faith is the one who didn't eat meat. The one who was legalistic was the one who was weak in the faith, not the one who was exercising or using their liberties. That's interesting. But why is he weak in the faith? What makes this brother a weak brother? Again, in this case, it's probably because of his legalism. He came out of a legalistic background. He probably was a Jew and was used to these things and got saved out of that and hasn't learned about his freedom and and how to use his freedom. And so he's hanging on to his legalism or his formalism. Maybe they're just new Christians. Maybe they haven't been saved very long. Right? We don't hold babies to the same standards that we hold adults to. right? That that wouldn't make any sense. right? So so maybe that's why he was a weaker brother. Maybe they've been injured or sick. Maybe they've been hurt by other Christians. Or they've been poisoned by some kind of bad teaching concerning their liberties. And because of this, they're, they're weak. They're not able to exercise their faith in the way that we are. Or maybe they're not nourished. Maybe they just haven't, they've been a Christian a while, but they just haven't been getting manna. So they're weak, they're malnourished, and they're not able to exercise their faith the way that we are. Or maybe it's, it's not because they're not eating enough. Maybe it's because they aren't serving enough. They're getting enough Bible, they're getting enough theology, they're hearing all kinds of preaching and that, and they're just getting fat on it. Yet they're not serving, they're not exercising their spiritual muscles. And so just like us, when we take in food, even if it's great and healthy food, and more and more of it, but we don't actually go and exercise and and use our muscles, what happens to us? We become flabby, we become weak. And the same thing is true for the Christian. And so there's many ways that we could be a weak brother, or that someone could be a weak believer. Paul's point is that we should lovingly accept them into the fellowship. And it's not to argue with them or, or, or win them over. It's to bring them into the body. So the first diagnostic question we ask is: Is this a matter of opinion, or is it simply, or is it something that Scripture speaks clearly about? If it's the latter, right? If it's uh, um, something that Scripture's spoken clearly about, then by all means uh, apply Matthew 18 to it. Matthew 18, Jesus says if, if your brother sins, go and confront him. But right? if it's an actual scriptural issue, if there's actual sin involved, then confront the person. But if it's an opinion, we're to let it go and let the Lord deal with it. The second diagnostic t- test is that uh, does the use of my liberty cause me to pass the judgment test? So the word judgment the judgment test. So how do I use my liberty in a way that causes me to judge my breath? It's an interesting question. Some of you guys probably noticed that on Sundays I've been dressing a little different the last few weeks. You know, it's just a conviction that I had, you know, that uh, as I was talking about earlier, it's a big deal to come into the house of God everything that God has saved us from. And and you think about all that the the Jewish people had to do to come into God's presence. God says, you're not to appear before me empty-handed, right? It it was a big deal to have this freedom that we have to be able to come in God's presence. And I was thinking about how, you know, if, if you were to, like, say, go out on a date or go to some nice restaurant, you'd have no problem dressing up, right? If you were to go to court, you probably wouldn't. Most people probably wouldn't stand before a judge, a superior court, the way that they come to church. They'd probably dress it up, right? but, but I'm going to stand before the judge and all the universe. And so it was just a conviction I had. Hey, you know, to, to dress a little nicer, to, to show this reverence. Now the dangerous thing is, is it, it would be very easy for me, after doing this for a while, to start looking at other people and say, Hey, where's your reverence? I come, come you know, you know, wearing flip-flops and a T-shirt, you know, or, or or whatever, you you don't have the faith like me. Now I'm using my liberty in a way that's causing me to pass judgment on my brother or sister in Christ. I want to caution us on this because Satan is is very, very, very subtle. <laughs> he he could do that. He's going to cause us to use our liberty in a way that's going to make us, you know, start to look down on people who don't share that same conviction. Or he might go the other way and just say, oh, it doesn't matter. You have the liberty. And you just disregard, you know, the whole thing about having reverence for the Lord and things like that. And you just, you know, so, so he could attack you on either side. And he will. He'll know exactly what works. So be careful about that. But Paul going to give us a bunch of reasons not to judge our brother. Reasons why this doesn't make sense. And the first one is is that God loves and accepts them. In verses two and three, because one person has faith, but he may eat all things. but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. It's like this, I'm worshiping my way, you're worshiping and serving your way. Why am I to judge you? God's accepting you. He's accepting your worship. He's accepting your service. There's no reason for me to judge. Further, if you think about it, hopefully God is leading you in the way that you're worshiping. And he's leading me in the way that I'm worshiping. And if it's different, and I'm condemning you for it or judging you for it, then I'm really passing judgment on God, because He's the one who's leading you. He's the one who's accepting you. The second is God will make them stand. The word stand. Look at verse four. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or he falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his mind. You know, this weaker brother can be missing the mark on a variety of reasons. We we mentioned that just a few minutes ago. But I shouldn't be judgmental because the Lord can make them stand. The Lord will make them stand. Right? Yeah, they might be weak, they might be immature, they might have these problems now, but the Lord is going to sanctify them. The Lord is going to cause them to stand before Him. Philippians one six says this: "For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus." If God has began this work in this brother, He saved him and and started this work in His life we could be confident that God is going to conclude it. As Diana just said, even when we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So meaning this brother, yeah, he might be messed up, he might be blowing it, but you know what? God's going to get him there. God's going to get him to the finish line. One day he will be in glory with us, and this will not matter. I say this all the time, but it's an important truth to remember. right? It's not your job to get you to heaven. If you are a true believer, you're not going to get to heaven because of anything that you do. Right? It's Jesus' job to get you to heaven. You're going to get to heaven because of what Jesus is doing, because of his faithfulness in your life. Right? And, and the same thing is true about our brother. Right? So, so we can trust that Jesus is faithful, that Jesus is going to get them to heaven. Jesus says this in John 6. He says in verse 29, this is the will of him who sent me. that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. It's the Father's will and it's Jesus' mission to get every believer to heaven. And, And they will get there. God is able to make them stand. So it makes no sense for me to pass judgment or to condemn them, right? In the next one, we worship and serve the same God. So from in the word same. In the verses 5 through 9, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives to himself, and not one of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, if we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So, so we both have the same God. You know, we're, we're all of the same family. You know, my sister and I are, are very different, right? We, are in in all kinds of ways, we're different, right? She's gay and I'm not, you know, just there's a lot of ways that we are different. But I accept her and I love her because we have the same parents. She's my sister. We're part of the same family. So we're able to come together and those differences don't matter. We're able to enjoy each other, be a family because of that. You know, I'm really good friends with this family. Uh, I've known him for a long time, over 20 years, the, the dad, the kind of patriarch. He's in heaven now. But he was the one who led me to the Lord. Uh, anyway, but some of the kids in this family who are, are grownups now. Uh, they're not saved. And it's very evident that they're not saved. And sometimes they'll be over there and, and they get in fights with each other, these arguments with each other, and they start screaming things at each other. Things like, you son of a bee. And, and I'm like, right. Thinking to myself, like, you're an idiot. Like, you're, you're condemning yourself. Like, if he's a son of a bee, that makes me a son of a bee because you guys have the same mother, you dummies. And I think, in a very in a spiritual sense, we, we kind of do the same thing. We're passing judgment and, and demeaning each other in the body of Christ, but we forget that we're one body and that Christ is head of that body. And so, by making fun of and demeaning him, and condemning each other, we're really condemning our self. We need to be careful not to do this. Jesus died and bought each one of us with his blood, and we're all to be one body, and he's the head. To judge and condemn each other, we're condemning ourselves and the Lord in the process. He's the Lord of us all, right? Let's let him be the Lord. I want to say this too, let's let Jesus be the Lord of the conscience as well. Is the only one who has the right to bind your conscience. Nothing else could do that. The Pope doesn't have the right to bind your conscience. The church doesn't have that right. Even confession on documents. This Westminster Confession of faith is, is great. I, I've loved studying it. I've seen such great theology in it. I've been so blessed by it. But it, we can't let it bind our conscience because it's not infallible. It's not in that. Uh, We're going to come up to a chapter here in a few weeks on baptism. And I'm going to go against almost everything that this confession says because it, it is for baptizing infants. And I don't think the scriptures teach you should baptize infants. So even things like a confessional doctrine, a great teaching, a great book, those aren't scripture. So don't let any pastor or anybody else lay this trip or burden on you that neither Scripture or the Holy Spirit does. Kind of uh, the idea behind this was uh, Martin Luther and the Diet of Worms. and, and They were trying to get him to recount, recant uh, what he says about the resurrection. And, and he's like, I, I, I can't do that because my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. And and that's where our conscience needs to be. It needs to be the word of God that's directing us and nothing else. The fourth reason not to judge our brother is because there's an ultimate judge and you're not him. So fill in the word judge and him. Look at verses 10 and 12. Uh, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Here's, Paul is talking about this judgment that everybody's going to have to face. Now he's not talking about the great white throne judgment, because we're believers, right? He's talking about the messiah, of Christ. Romans eight one says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So this judgment isn't about condemnation. It's it's not like we're going to get sent to hell at it or get rebuked at it. It's a judgment for rewards. And God's going to search our life and look for anything that we've done in in faith and and, and fully for Him. And and He's going to reward us for that. You know, we don't often think about the fact that we're going to have to stand before God and answer for what we've done with what he's given us. But it is a truth that we are going to stand before God. And Paul's point here is that I don't need to judge my brother because he already has a judge, and this judge is going to do a much better job judging him than I will because that judge is perfect, and I'm not. So we could allow the perfect judge to be judge over our brother. You know, instead of worrying about judging my brother or sister, I should worry about running my own race so I could be pleasing to the Lord, my judge, as well. In Second Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, Paul says that's his aim. That's his goal in life is to be pleasing to the Lord. He says, therefore, we have this as our ambition, whether home or absent, whether here or in heaven, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. But we want to be as pleasing to God as possible. Right? And some people say they don't really care about rewards in heaven; they just want to get there. They don't care about having some big crown or some big mansion. You know, uh, I, I, I I don't think that's kind of the point here or the purpose of this. You know, I, I don't think it's like some of us are going to be walking around with these giant crowns and some of us are just going to have like a bobby pin on our head or something like that. You know, uh, I, I don't think that's the case. And either way, we're all going to take those crowns and cast them back at Jesus' feet anyways. Right? But, uh, but I question that brother that says, I don't really care about the rewards. Right, that's not a big thing. I'm not going to worry about that. I just want to get into heaven. I I question that because that reveals a lot to me about his heart now. Right? Why doesn't it matter? Right? Paul's ambition was to be pleasing to the Lord, whether you know at home or absent. Right? It was all about pleasing the Lord. It was all about honoring the Lord. So the first test, is it scripture? The second, will it cause me to become arrogant and judge my brother who's weaker? You know, as we grow in our knowledge, uh, we grow in our ability uh, to know our freedom and to exercise our freedom, but we run the risk of becoming unloving. Right? It says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Right? So, so we run this risk of, Hey, I got the knowledge about this, and I know I could do these things. But then we start you know, condemning or passing judgment on the weaker brother who doesn't have this knowledge instead of loving them, instead of having concern for them, instead of trying to edify them. So that brings us to the third test. Can the use of my liberty cause my brother to stumble? And here's really the the heart of Paul's argument. For the use of our liberties, both here and in 1 uh, Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. But uh, let's look at verses 13, I'm sorry, verses 13 through 21. Yeah, It says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather uh, determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is in, unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything, To be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. You know, we need to love our brother more than you love your liberty and there's still in, brother and liberty. <coughs> you know, there's ways that we could use our liberties that would cause our brother to stumble. Right? And, and Jesus gives us some warning about this. In Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, uh, Jesus gives this warning. He said to his disciples, It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him to whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones, one of these weaker brothers, to stumble. You know, I might have the liberty to enjoy a beer. There's nothing inherently wrong with drinking a beer. It could be abused, and uh, but a lot of things could be abused right? I, I, I have this liberty, right? However, my brother in Christ might not have this liberty. My brother might have come from an alcoholic background, or or maybe you know, like Samson and some people in the Old Testament, the Lord just wants him to be under a vow and, and not drink alcohol. And the Lord has told him, hey, you're, you're not to drink this. This isn't going to be a part of your life. And maybe he's working on it, you know? Maybe he's you know, trying to give this up, or he's fighting this. And we go out to dinner, and I order a beer with my dinner. And he sees me drinking that. He's oh, hey, Joe's spiritual. You know, he he teaches the Bible, Uh, and and he drinks a beer, so it must not be a good, bad thing for me. And he drinks it. Now I'm causing my brother to sin. Yeah, drinking a beer may not be sin, but God has told him that for him it's a sin. And the way that i have used my liberty is causing them to stumble. I saw this happen firsthand Uh, when I got saved. uh, I started going to this kind of home fellowship, this Bible study at my friend Steve's house. My friend Steve was a a really spiritual guy, a great teacher. Uh, But him and his wife loved what you could know, you know. And and they, they did it in a way that honored God for the most part. But they were really, really wealthy, and had this really nice house here in Norbalinda. And and part of it, they had this wine cellar that you could see from the kitchen. And there was uh, a guy that came to this study who was, Steve, actually his brother-in-law, his wife's brother. And he was younger. He was probably 18, 19 years old. Him and his girlfriend came, and they were just absolutely on fire for the Lord. And I was like, man, this is awesome. I couldn't imagine being 17 and and on fire for the Lord. learning the scriptures, and just all the potential. on And I started seeing that Steve liked to drink alcohol, and thought it was okay, and, you know, and started asking him about wine and things like that, and then, you know, started to use it, and he didn't have the same amount of self-control as Steve. He, he was younger. And then he went to college, and last I heard from him, he was a raging alcoholic who was addicted to Vicodin and cocaine. And, went out of school and, and all of these problems. It wasn't even walking with the Lord. I had no relationship with the Lord. Now, I'm not blaming that on my brother Steve, but I don't know. Maybe if he would have used his liberty in a more discretionary way, you know, that might not have happened. Again, in First Corinthians, the issue was food sacrificed to idols. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8.13. He says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Better just to give up the liberty than to cause your brother to stumble. So the question really becomes which do I love more, my liberty or my brother? This activity that I get to do? with this person that Christ died for, that I'm gonna spend eternity with. That's really the question. We need to be a servant and a disciple. Only servant and disciple. Verses seventeen through nineteen For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he is acceptable to God and approved by man. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. You know, the kingdom of God isn't about doing whatever you want. It's about unity and peace, righteousness. And one way to guard us from using our liberties in a way that causes our brother to sin is to make serving and building up our fellow Christians our goal, to make that the aim of our life, is to be a servant of all, to be a discipler of all, to live your life for the purpose of building up and edifying the body of Christ and other people. Because if that's our goal, if, if that's what our heartbeat is, if that's what we're trying to do, it's going to be easy to give up that liberty. We're not even going to think about that liberty. Right, Because we're going to be thinking about, hey, how could I encourage this brother? How could I strengthen this brother? How could I cause this brother's walk to go? How could I bring unity to the body of Christ? For, one pastor said this, I like it. It's not about the externals, but the eternals, which must be first in our lives. Righteousness, peace, and joy. We need to have the, the right priorities. Next is, don't let your liberty become your sin. Throw in the word sin. Verses 20 and 21, do not tear down the work of God for food's sake. All things are indeed clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. You know, it may not be a sin to drink a beer, but if I drink a beer in a way that causes my brother to stumble, now I'm sinning. It's actually sin. It's not just like, hey, you know, you you kind of blew it there or you need to use your liberties better. No, it's sin. No, it's, it's 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 sin. Remember what Jesus says to do about sin, how we're to deal with sin? Right? If my right hand causes me to sin, I'm to cut it off and pick it up and throw it as far away from me as I can. If my eye causes me to sin, I'm to pluck it out, and to pick it up and throw it as far away from me as I can. So now we've got to apply that to our liberties. If my liberty causes me to sin, we know where it needs to go. Sometimes we need to say my liberty here is that I can say no for the sake of somebody else. I have the freedom to say no. In other words, I get to be like Jesus with my liberty. Right? I, I get to sacrifice it for somebody else. Jesus had the freedom, but he was constrained to the will of God. He was a slave to the will of God. And and we need to live in that same dynamic. So the first test is there's a scripture test. The second is we have the the judgment test. Is this going to cause me to judge my brother? Third, we have the love thy brother test. Am I able to love my brother in using this liberty? And fourth, we get the love by God test. So number four, fill in, does this use of my liberty honor God? Fill in the word God. Verses 22 and 23, the faith which you have, having your own conviction before God. He's not saying, hey, don't share your faith, don't evangelize. He's saying, hey, this this conviction that God gave you, seeking him about this liberty, that's between you and God. Don't push that on other people. right?" Uh, So the faith that we have, have it as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not From faith is sin. You know, uh, so fill in is it a faith? The first question to ask. The word faith. Is is this something that God is telling me to do? Is the question. Is God leading me to do this? Has God spoken to me about this? You know, sometimes I think we got the wrong definition of faith. Uh, We think it's something that we think Jesus would be okay with. Like we might say, hey, you know, I, I think Jesus would be okay with this. You know, after all, Jesus drank wine. Jesus turned water into wine, so I get to drink wine. You know, that kind of idea. But that's not exactly what faith is. Faith is the ability to hear God speak and respond appropriately. Faith is always a response to what God has Revealed, you know. So faith isn't doing always what other Christians do. Faith isn't homeschooling your kids because that's what Christians do. Faith isn't denying the vaccine because that's what Christians do. You know, faith is hearing from God and applying that to your life. Again, the faith which you have has is your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not yeah. is sin. So we need to be clear that we're hearing from God and being led by God in the way that we use our convictions. You know, is this something that God has said it's okay for me to do? have i taken this to the lord have i prayed about it have i asked the lord hey should i use this is this going to be a good thing for me to do and and responded based on what the lord leads us to do and not necessarily what every other christian is doing a great example of this is with covid you know i didn't want to get the covid vaccine I, i didn't see any need for it for me i I, I, I really didn't want it, and I prayed about it, and I had peace about it, and I didn't get it for the longest time. I was fine with that. you know. But then I started getting some opportunities to go and preach at schools, to go to Israel and teach there. Uh, I started hearing about people that were sick and dying in the hospital and pastors not being able to go and visit them because they weren't vaccinated and things like that. And then all of a sudden, I felt like the Lord was like, no, you need to get this vaccine. And I'm like, I don't want to get it, God. (laughs) I already told you that. I thought we were cool with that. And he says, no, you you need to get it. And at that moment, I felt like, hey, if I don't get this, I'm going to be being disobedient to the Lord. Again, getting a vaccine, that's a liberty. The Bible doesn't say you have to get it or you don't have to get it. You can make cases on both sides that you're operating in faith. But for me, operating in faith was hearing God say, no, you need to get this because I want you to be able to serve my people. And so it was an act of faith for me to actually go and get the vaccine. That's exercising our conscience according to faith. Paul here says, happy is he who doesn't condemn himself in what he approves. We're not approving things that our conscience condemns. Even if it's a liberty. Even if all the other Christians are doing it. Even if every other Christian at the church is sending their kid to homeschool, but you feel like God is saying, no, send your kid to public school. You need to obey your conscience. Because if you don't, not only will you be wrong, but you're going to be miserable. There's, There's no happiness for people whose conscience is constantly condemning them. Look at the, the homosexuals, right? What did they want? They wanted equal rights. They wanted equal protections. They wanted to be able to get married like everybody else. And we give them that. They have all of them. But it's still not enough. Now, it, it, it's not only do they have to have that, but now I have to approve of them. Right? There, there's always going to be something. You know Why? Because it doesn't matter what culture is saying and all of that. It's their own conscience. Their own heart is condemning them because they're violating the law of God. They don't understand that. They're just projecting that onto us. But if you're going against your conscience, if you're not being obedient to your conscience, you're going to be a miserable person. need to be obedient to the Lord, at least we'll have a clear conscience. Lastly, does it promote sanctification? Don't know it's sanctification. You know, I was gonna call this point, you need to have the right goal, right? But because our goal isn't to be as closest to the world as we can without sinning. Our goal isn't to be able to use all the liberties we can without sinning. Our goal is to be as close to Jesus as possible. Our, our, our goal is, is is to be as close to the Shepherd as possible. It's to be as much like Jesus as possible. To be confirmed into the image of Jesus as much as possible. Our goal is our sanctification. That's God's will for us, and that's what should be the goal of our life. It was the goal of Paul's life. Paul says this in Philippians. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he says, Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which has laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on to become more like Christ, to get closer to Christ press on to sanctification. So the question is, is using my liberty this way, is it going to help me to get closer to Jesus? Because nothing else matters. If we're truly pursuing Christ with all that we have, we'll be able to call all this rubbish like Paul does a few verses earlier in Philippians chapter 3. You know, Paul says this in, in, in 1 Corinthians, in the passage about liberties. He says this, 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So I I, I could do whatever I want, but I'm only going to do the things that are profitable, the things that edify me, the things that bring me closer to Jesus, the things that make me more like Jesus. That was the test for Paul. Is this going to further my salvation, my sanctification, and if not, I didn't want it. So in closing, a couple of things. Christ has given us this extraordinary freedom in him. However, we need to use this freedom in a way that honors him. We need to live a way that expresses faith in the word of God. We need to live in a way that loves and accepts our brothers and sisters, whom Christ also accepts. We need to use our freedoms in a way that doesn't pass judgment on others. We need to be careful not to use our freedoms, that our our freedoms don't cause our brothers or sisters to stumble, that we're not going to tempt others to sin. And lastly, we need to pursue being closer to the Lord. Amen? So let's pray. God, I thank you again for our liberties. I pray that we would use them in ways that would honor You, Lord, that would draw us closer to You, in ways that would make us more like You, Lord. I pray that we would uh, live for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be concerned with them and live to edify them and, and to have a, a unity in Your body. I pray that we remember that we are one body and You are the head of that body. And one day we're going to be with You for eternity, Lord. One day we're going to have to stand before you and give an account for what you, we've done with these liberties you've given us, Lord. And I pray that we would all hear, well done, good and faithful servant on that day, Lord. So, so teach us in these next weeks, this year coming up, uh, how to use our liberties in a better way, how to be mindful of our brothers and sisters and, and how to honor you, God. I thank you for tonight. I pray for those that aren't here with us that you'd bring them back next week for our party, Lord. But we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.